How's everybody doing? You all look like you have kind of the Christmas hangover. It's, you know, it's, it's, what was that? <laughs> good, 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 good. The, uh, it's, uh, this is an incredible time. Guys, go ahead and come on down. We're going to do the, the uh, welcome books and the, and the offering. We're going to do something special today. It's the uh, last Sunday of 2014. And um, as a part of that, we want to do something that uh, collectively as a church that we can celebrate and experience together. I'd like for the elders to come forward and uh, Dan Tace. Come on down. Um, the uh, the biblical design for leading a church. I don't know if, if you know. Whoa! Yeah, baby. I'm trying to think how that fits. <laughs> um, the the um, the biblical design for leading a local body of believers. A local church is pretty simple. Um, the Bible describes two different kinds of roles. Describes shepherds and servants. The words in our English Bible for shepherds and servants that we use practically are elders and deacons. Shepherds are elders. Um, servants are deacons. Um, is what scripture says. There are qualifications in Timothy and Titus that talk about what um, what's involved in in becoming and being an elder, what what those traits or those characteristics are for the for the shepherds. And it says in first Timothy three, it says an incredible thing. It says he who desires to serve as a shepherd desires a good thing. What do shepherds do? What do leaders in a local church do? They do really three things. They protect. They love. And they lead, they protect, they love, and they lead. That's the role of these guys who are in front of you here at North Point. At North Point, our elders are Jason Beebe, who's not here today, and uh, John Seeger, Jeff Rouse, and Jeff Kimmy. Uh, yeah, go ahead and uh, encourage them. That's cool. Um, Chris Carter and I are uh, ministering elders as well. We're part of the elder team that, again, our role is to protect to love and to lead. And we have the privilege today of, of um, installing, of ordaining Dan Tace as one of our elders. You may remember back in October, we had a uh, uh, time together as a, as a congregation and Dan was unanimously affirmed as an elder, as a shepherd for North Point. Um, and as a part of just the way that we do things, that starts the first week, January 1st, of the new year. And so we, what we wanted to do this morning was to just spend some time and to pray for Dan uh, as he officially begins his new role. For the last year, Dan has been a part of the eldership in a mentor kind of a role. He's studied together with the guys. He's been a part of the discussions. He knows us. We know him. And, um, and, and so we have full confidence. You as a congregation have full confidence in Dan. We could have done this privately, not done it on a Sunday morning, but, but it's something I think that it's important for us as a church to experience and to celebrate when Scripture says, he who desires the role of a shepherd um, desires a good thing. It's something that we can celebrate when Dan takes this step. So let me just ask a couple of real simple questions. Dan, have you prayed about and considered the responsibilities you, that you have in this new role as elder? Yes, I have. Do you accept the charge that we give you today to help protect and love and lead North Point? Yes, I do. 
We're going we're gonna to just spend some time in prayer. Jeff, if you would uh, lead us in a, in a time of prayer, why don't you come and, and we'll, we'll kneel because that looks more spiritual, um, certainly. Um, we're going to place our hands on There's not anything magic in the whole hand thing, but it's symbolic of the passing of leadership, of, of sharing that together. And as for you as a congregation, if you're comfortable, let me encourage you to just put your hand up towards Dan as a, as a gesture as well to pray for him as Jeff leads our prayers this morning. Father God in heaven, I just thank you for this, uh, for this day. I thank you for Dan. I thank you for sending him, for listening to our prayers, to, to sending Dan to be an overseer of this church and, and preparing him beforehand, Lord, in his, uh, in his walk that he's, he's been in his journey. He's been on with you, Lord. And I just uh, I pray for his ministry that you have him in right now and then that he will uh, be a good leader, a, a good shepherd of this church, and, uh, and will listen to you and continue to... to uh, to follow you, to, to listen to you, to to follow your will, Lord. So, Lord, I just thank you. I thank you for him. I pray for his family, and, uh, and I just pray for this church, and I just thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would, just encourage Dan. Dan. And Dan's wife, is she out in the lobby? Okay, yeah. Dan's wife is Val. I introduced her first service. Uh, Val's great. Get a chance to know them if you, if you don't. Um, God's working through Dan in an incredible way for us as a church. Um, you know, December 28th, the Sunday between Christmas and Thanksgiving is a weird Sunday. What do you do with that, right? You know, it's like Christmas is done, but it's not really done. You haven't got your, direct, your decorations down yet. There's still stuff around, but it's kind of, ah, what do you do? It's not the new year. And, um, and it causes me to reflect on the Christmas story. And because we're doing this series on the characters of Christmas, there's a perfect fit for us today. Before we get there, though, if you think about Christmas stories, um, for most of us, when you fall in one of two camps at Christmas time, you, you either really love it. And you love the peace and the quiet and all of the stuff. You love the Hallmark Channel, you know, all that stuff. Or you're one of those people that's kind of like, can't wait for this to be done. Let's get it done and move on and go for there. I'm seeing the nudges from the wives. Uh, That's you, honey. There are some villains in Christmas stories, though, if you think about it. You know, from from the time I was little to watch Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the, the abominable snowman, we, you know, in the beginning of that, he's a, this scary guy that ultimately has his teeth pulled by Hermie and becomes good. But uh, the abominable, he, he's a bad guy. He's a, he's a villain. When, when you think about uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol, you've got Ebenezer Scrooge, right? He's, he, he is the epitome of a miser, of a curmudgeon, of, you know, of, of the guy who's so inwardly focused he misses the big picture until he goes on the journey and sees Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. And even in It's a Wonderful Life, you've got Mr. Potter, right? The, the guy who wants to spoil it for, for everyone. The, um, probably probably the, the, the apex, the, the um, symbol of all that's bad at Christmas comes in this creature who even has a song written about him. Let's hear the song. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Sing along, yeah. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. 
You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. Six verses, right? Uh, six, uh, six verses it takes to say how bad the Grinch is. In the context of the characters of Christmas, there's a character in the Christmas story that, uh, that, makes, that makes the Grinch really look kind of kind. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's this guy that is the epitome of everything that's bad, and yet God is working even in spite of him. The, today we're looking at the Christmas story, the characters of Christmas. We've talked about, uh, about St. Nicholas. We've talked about Zechariah and Elizabeth. We've talked about Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. Today we're going to talk about the wise men, but our Grinch's name is Herod. Now, in Scripture, there, there are actually six different guys with the name Herod. The Herod that we're going to talk about today, Herod the Great, is not the same Herod that Jesus stood before when he was put on trial. Um, that was a, a couple of generations later of Herod's. Herod the Great is the main character that we're going to take a look at today in the context of the Christmas story. Herod the Great was one bad guy. Um, he was bloodthirsty. He didn't hesitate to kill people. He was ruthless. He um, was power hungry. The, the word megalomaniac fits Herod really, really well. He was a schemer and a conniver. He, he did everything that he could to get in power and then to retain his power. Herod the Great was the king over the region of Judea. And, and Herod's title was king of the Jews. You'll see how that plays into the Christmas story in just a second. Herod wanted to leave a legacy. He wanted to control his power, and he wanted to leave a legacy. And if you go to Israel, you can still see ruins that were built when Herod was in power during his 37-year reign um, from roughly from uh, 40 or, uh, yeah, 41 B.C. to about 4 B.C. 37 years uh, he was in charge. He built a temple, uh, not a temple, he built a palace on top of Masada. If you know the story of Masada, there's this mountain that's, that is all by itself. Herod built a palace there so that he could escape if people were trying to take him and remove him from power. Herod built the temple, um, the second temple uh, in Jerusalem. The western wall that is still there is a wall that was built when Herod was, was king of Judea. Herod built palaces. He built a, a port in Caesarea Maritime that um, with, with labor by hand set blocks into this uh, port that created a port so that large ships could come in and would be, would be shielded from the storms. He built an aqueduct system that's still there in Caesarea Maritime. Uh, check it out. You can see the, some of the things that, that Herod built. Herod had a beautiful wife named Miriam. Um, when you read historians, they still talk about the beauty of Miriam, and, and Herod loved her um, intensely. He, uh, he, he, was, um, he, he loved her so much that he did some strange things. Herod, in trying to control his power, a couple of times got called up, uh, called into the Romans. He got called on the carpet, and when he went in, he expressed his love in kind of a strange way. He had his wife Miriam locked up with orders that if he were to be executed for, um, for displeasing the Roman government, she would be killed because in his mind, he thought she's so beautiful. If I can't have her, no one else can. 
Well, the first time that that happened, um, Herod kind of uh, talked his way out of it with Miriam because Miriam found out about it, but she wasn't really sure. The second time it happened and Miriam realized that um, he really did plan to have her killed if he died, that he didn't care about her living. He just wanted to execute her. Um, She pretty much stopped their relationship. There was no more physical intimacy. Herod was unhappy and Herod had her killed. Um, Herod was a bad guy. He had Miriam killed. He had Miriam's um, brother killed. He had Miriam's mother killed. He had Miriam's grandfather killed. Herod, Herod had two of his sons executed. Five days before Herod died, when he was 70 years old, he knew his end was coming, but he had a son named Antipater that, um, that was positioning himself to take over for Herod. Herod perceived him as a threat and had him killed five days before his death. Herod was one bad guy. So when we begin to read in Matthew chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. All of a sudden, you begin to look at the Christmas story with a bigger picture when you begin to understand who Herod was. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, that's Herod the great, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That was Herod's title. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. That verse, verse 3 when you begin to think about that and think about the implications of it, it's, it is what really wanted me to focus on Herod this morning. When Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Think about what happens when you've got a king, a person in power, who's willing to do anything to take care of any kind of, um, of resistance, any kind of threat to him. When you begin to kill everything in sight, Herod had 2,000 personal bodyguards. When you begin to kill everything in sight, if you're in Jerusalem and Herod's not happy, ain't nobody happy. Everyone is scared of what's going to happen. When Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, where the Messiah was to be born. It's interesting that Herod is king of the Jews but he doesn't know the scriptures well enough to know where the Messiah would come from. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. It's interesting that Herod before he knows anything, only that a king of the Jews has been born, that he's already launching a plan that will allow him to take care of things if he's not able to personally. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, Herod sent the wise men to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. One commentator I, wrote, I read wrote in the margin right after that verse, Herod, you cunning and bloody hypocrite. 
to, to, to say that he wanted to come and worship when, in, when his full intent instead was, was to kill this new king. After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warmed in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night. Joseph immediately obeyed and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take, up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. And being warmed in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. As we unpack Matthew chapter 2 this morning, the thing that I want you to see just as we begin to um, look into that story more fully is God's hand involved in the the Christmas story at every turn. Um, What do we know? I I want to ask some questions to just try and help make us think some more about this particular passage of Scripture. And then I want to give you three, ultimately, ultimately three takeaways at the end of the message. But the, the first question is this. What do we know about the historical context that was going on at this point in time? There are some things that we can learn from historians. Um, uh, the census that's mentioned in Luke 2, we, taught, we read about um, on Christmas Eve, that brings Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, that census um, it's interesting that about this time frame, somewhere between 4 and 6 B.C., was the 750th anniversary of the founding of the Roman nation. So the, the, the nation is 750 years old, and it's the 25th year of Caesar Augustus' reign. So those two things happen at the same time. It makes sense to think that in conjunction with that, that the country, that Caesar would say, you know what, let's, let's do this census to figure out the glory of Rome, how big we are, how many people are under our reign. We know that that happened about that time. We know that the population of Bethlehem at this time, um, based on the archaeologists, is somewhere around 1,000 
We know that the journey for Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem was about 80 miles. That at best they probably could have traveled it in four or five days with Mary um, nine months pregnant. Um, it may have taken longer than that. But, but it was about an 80-mile journey for them to come to Bethlehem to be registered in the census. We know, based on the Jewish historian named Josephus, that Herod the Great died in 4 BC. There are some things that happened um, with, the, with the planets, some things that happened in history that interline, that it's very clear they actually are able to narrow the, the date of death for Herod down to about five days in March of 4 BC. We know that somewhere around 6 BC that there was a funky thing that happened in the sky that astrologically some things happened that came together at that point in time that very easily um, could make sense in light of the story of the star that the wise men followed. What is it that we know about the wise men? Um, you know, uh, for most of us, we see the wise men on the Christmas cards, right? You, you, I don't know why wise men car, cards are always blue, but they always are blue, right? You, you've got the wise men on the camels doing their deal in terms of coming. We know that the wise men came from the east. They were probably from Persia. We know that they had traveled a long, long way um, based on, on, on Herod's conversation with them and ultimately when he kills the children that are two, at the age of two and, and younger, that the journey for the wise men was probably somewhere at least a year or a year and a half, a year and three quarters, um, that their journey was that long to come and visit the child that they had been following the star. We know that, that uh, the word wise, what we talk about wise men, that the word that's there in the scripture is the word magi. Um, it's a word that sometimes is used to describe magicians or sorcerers. But in this context, it makes a lot more sense for it to be astro- to, to describe astronomers, um, philosophers, really learned men. And that's consistent with the use of that term as well. We know that they had resources, that, the, that because they brought wealth, they um, had those kinds of resources. And we know that they weren't Jewish. We don't know how many wise men came. We picture in our mind because of the three gifts that it was three guys, three guys on camels, especially. Right. But we don't know that for sure. It could have been a much larger entourage. Um, We know that um, it says wise men, it's plural. So there was two or more. But we don't know how many. It may be that you grew up in a tradition that that the wise men were a key part of that and that that um, you you learned um, early on that their names were um, were Balthazar, um, Casper, Melchior. Um, we don't know that. That's tradition that's, that's come down from the Middle Ages. So there's a lot that we don't know about the wise men, but we do know that they were, they were learned, they came from a long way, and that they followed the star to find Jesus. What is it that we know about the star? Um, th- some things have changed really in the last uh, 15 or 20 years with supercomputers a- um, that are able to, to project backwards in time with with uh, with the star the solar system and the movement of the stars and that kind of thing, that in the last ten or fifteen years there have been some changes in terms of how people scientists especially um, believe that the Bethlehem star could have occurred. Um, for a long time, P, uh, scientists thought you know it was probably a comet. Um, the Chinese say that in six B.C. there was a comet that went through the sky. That there's still evidence that they can point back to, and that that could have been um, a clue for the birth of Jesus. 
Some scientists believe it was a supernova, that it was a star that, that exploded and, and um, burst into creation at that point in time, did, did crazy things in the sky. But the thing that's happened in the last 10 or 15 years uh, with, with the supercomputer piece is that they've been able to look backwards and to determine that some guys say in 6 BC, some say in 4 BC, uh, in, but in that general time frame, that Saturn and Jupiter crossed paths in what appeared to the sky in their rotation of the sun three different times. There was an, uh, 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 a retrograde inversion that happens with those planets, a conjunction of those planets that, that would have, in the sky, looked amazing and would have been very, very different. Um, it, it's something that, that um, happens only like thousands of years, uh, that, that kind of variety. And what happens in, that, in the movement of those planets together is that it appears that they're moving and that they stop and that they would vanish and that they would start again, which is amazingly consistent with what the Bible describes here. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, when I start to put these pieces together and read historians that say, okay, um, Herod the Great died in 4 BC, so Jesus had to be born before that. But some of the scientists say some of the astronomical things, astrological things, didn't happen until 3 BC. That doesn't make sense. Some of them say 6 BC. How's all that stuff fit together? What do you do? What do you do when science and history and scripture don't match up? That, that's a real-life question because there are times that it doesn't all connect in a way that we understand. Um, let, let me just tell you for me, um, I, I think that it's a critical question because the place that you start determines where you end. For me, I will always start with a place to say I know that Scripture is true. Through Scripture, Scripture says all scriptures God-breathed. God's inspired it all. So that's always going to be my starting place. And it's interesting that you know, I, um, I don't feel like I'm very old, but I can remember things that scientists said, historians said 30 or 40 or 50 years ago that said, you know what, Scripture can't be true in this instance because of this particular thing that we know. We've been able to prove that that's true. And now 30 or 40 or 50 years later, all of a sudden that science that proved that, the thing that the historian wrote has been proven not to be true. History changes as more evidence comes. Scientific fact that, that, um, that we count on uh, as technology grows, all of a sudden there begins to be new rays of light that shed in. Scripture never changes. Where you start de- determines where you finish. And here's what I know. That in Matthew 2 it talks about this star that moved through the sky. Scientists for many years said there's no way a, a star could move like that. But Scripture says that the wise men followed the star that it stopped in Jerusalem, and, it, and ultimately it stopped over Bethlehem. Um, we can count on that. We can count on the fact that the wise men came from the east, this journey that, that um, lasted months and, and even a year, a year and a half long, to bring them uh, to Jesus in Bethlehem. What is it that we know about the gifts um, that the wise men gave to Jesus that they brought to this child. We know that their value was significant. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, I learned something this week that was, that was incredibly cool. Did you know that uh, an ounce, one ounce of gold can be hammered out 
and flattened into an area three, uh, that's 300 square feet um, in, in uh, distance. That's the size of two boxing rings. That helps bring it in perspective. One ounce of gold. Gold at that point in time, even today, is very, very valuable because it's very malleable. Um, and, it, and, it, and it's impervious to the elements that are around. It's not, um, it's not impacted by things that are around it that cause it to, to denigrate, to fall apart, um, uh, to, to decay. And so the gold was unbelievably valued. Frankincense is a rosin, a white rosin that comes from the Far East. It probably comes from the area where the wise men came from in Persia. There, that would have made sense. Um, frankincense was uh, a perfume that was used. It was highly valued as a perfume, and it had medicinal purposes as well. Um, one of the things that I read said that, that frankincense could be used to treat asthma and, um, and to help bring healing in that way. Myrrh was another rosin, a, a reddish-brown rosin that came from Africa. Think about the distance it would have had to travel to get to the wise men before it ever came to Bethlehem. But it's uh, this, uh, this other rosin, rosin and it's, a, it's a, a property, it's an element that's used to help things to stop from decaying. Um, myrrh was what was used to, to help embalm bodies in New Testament times. When scripture talks about Mary and the women coming, uh, t- taking, uh, going to the, to the tomb on Sunday morning with spices, myrrh would have been one of those spices. Myrrh was as valuable as gold in terms of its weight. If you had a, po- a pound of gold and a pound of myrrh at this point in time in history, their value would have been the same. That speaks to the value of the gifts that they brought Jesus that morning. Frankincense, which we hear more about, uh, myrrh was five times more valuable than frankincense. Understand that the, that the wise men, when they came, when they saw in the stars that something was going on, and they heard that the king of the Jews had been born, that the gifts that they brought had tremendous value. Um, The gifts that they were bringing came because they realized that a king had been born. Um, Some some people have talked about the symbolism of the gifts. They've said said that gold, um, they gave gold because Jesus was a king. They gave myrrh because he was mortal, that it could be used ultimately in his death. They gave incense because he was God. We don't know that for sure. We don't know why they gave those three particular gifts. But what we do know is that they saw such tremendous value in the birth of this child that they traveled at great expense, at great length, and brought gifts that were extremely valuable to lavish on this new king that had been born. Um, Let me just pause for a second and say this. I think that there's a lesson for us in our giving when we think about the wise men. The wise men were very intentional in terms of what they gave Jesus. And, and I think there's a challenge for us because for most of us, when we give, when we give to the church, when we give to kingdom projects, we tend to think this way. I'm going to pay my bills first. I'm going to buy what I want or need next. And then if I have kind of leftover, I'm going to give that to God. That's not the path that the wise men chose. 
There, there really was this sense that they said the value of this baby born in Bethlehem deserves our very best. We're going to pull out all the stops. We're going to give of all of our resources to him in worship. I think it's the end of the year and, and there, there's, a, there's a good challenge for us as we approach this new year to begin to think, how is it that I determine how I give to God? Do I give out of my extras? Do I give what I just have in my wallet? Do I give intentionally like the wise men? What do we know about the slaughter of the babies that Herod, um, that, that Herod uh, ordered? Uh, what's known in history is the slaughter of the innocents. We, we know some things about Greco-Roman culture. Um, in that culture, infants were not valued at all. Um, when a baby was born, they didn't have the chimes that played the lullaby go off at that point. Um, a father had the ability when a child was born, if he didn't like that child, if it was a girl, which a common thing, the father had the ability to simply walk away from that child and that child would die because it wasn't cared for. If a child was born with physical deformities, any kind of handicaps, um, the, uh, the historians tell us that it was not at all uncommon. It was a common practice for them to take a child, take it out into the wilderness so that it would be devoured by the beast. Children were not valued. Um, infants were not valued at that point in time. Um, and, and so when we look at historians, you think, isn't it weird that Herod orders the execution of all these babies and we don't hear anything about it in history until, uh, until the 5th century, until the, uh, in the 400s. When there's the, that's the first reference that there is to this event happening. Uh, about 400 years later, the Byzantines, um, in their comments, said, you know what, we think that, that when Herod had these babies killed, that there were about 16,000 babies that were executed. The Byzantines thought that roughly in, in the 800s. So a couple hundred years later, the Syrians said, no, it wasn't 16,000. It was probably 64,000. And then a couple hundred years after that, the Coptics said, no, not 64,000. It was 144,000 babies that were killed. That's kind of the way stuff goes with, with history, right? You know, it, the fish gets bigger and bigger and bigger. In reality, I'll tell you what I think. We don't know for sure. Um, I think that historians don't mention this other than Matthew because in that particular culture, it wasn't that big a deal. Bethlehem was a, a town of about 1,000. And if you begin to do the, the, the math, um, the number of babies that were killed in Bethlehem and the surrounding area, it was probably somewhere around 20 babies, somewhere between 12 and uh, you know, one or two dozen babies. That doesn't lessen the, the, the horrendousness of what Herod did. Think about that. Think about living in a town of a thousand and every boy child under two years of age being executed, the impact that that would have on that community for the next 20 or 30 years. It was a horrible thing. But it's no surprise when you look at the culture to understand that, that uh, nobody made a big deal of it because in that culture, life wasn't valued. Jesus changed that. What do we know about Mary and Joseph and Jesus? How long they were in Bethlehem? How long they were in Egypt? We don't really know very much at all. When you begin to look at the end of Luke 2, what happens is after Jesus is born, 
Eight days after he's born, he's taken to the temple to be dedicated, to be circumcised. And it's there at the temple, eight days later, um, Mary and Joseph, Jesus make this journey that's six or seven miles, probably a couple of hours with a new baby. They would, they would have gone um, slowly, maybe three hours, whatever, to get there. Um, it's there they encounter Anna and Simeon, a, a, a priestess and a prophet that say, this is the child. This is the child that's going to be the Messiah, the one who saves Israel. Um, they did it in the midst of all kinds of stuff going on. The, the temple court would have been a large, large place. But we know that that happened. And then we don't really know. They probably went back to Bethlehem after that. Mary's still recovering from, from uh, childbirth. They're there. We don't know how long that they're in Bethlehem, except that the wise men enter, come to Jerusalem. Herod asks the scholars, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, where it's going to take place. They say in Bethlehem, Herod sends the wise men there. The wise men go. They bring their gifts. They go back a different way at, at the direction of an angel. Herod gets angry and kills everybody. But at that point, an angel's appeared to Joseph. And Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus are on their way to Egypt. We don't know how long they're there. When, uh, when I was d- doing research and just trying to figure everything out, depending upon when Herod died and, um, and when, the, when the star appeared and how all those pieces fit together, it's possible that they could have been in Bethlehem for several weeks or months. And then in Egypt, maybe for as long as several years. It's also possible that it could have just simply been months. That they were there, they got there, um, they, um, they were in place there. Herod dies. His son, Antipater, that I mentioned, that he had executed five days before his death. Um, he was a bad dude just like his dad. Um, he didn't hesitate to kill people, to control his power. And, um, and so when the scripture says that the angel says to Joseph, those who have been trying to kill the child are dead. It could have been that that was a comment, uh, a kind of a royal they, that it was talking about Herod just in general, but it could have been that it was talking very specifically about Herod and his son. Here are the three things, you know, as we kind of process and think through the Christmas story, think about God's involvement, his interweaving through the process. Let me, let me give you three things to just kind of spin through your mind and to take with you, and to draw some applications to your life as well. The first is this. Finding Jesus didn't happen by chance. Think about the wise men. They recognized the signs in the sky. They had heard about a Messiah that that would be born in Israel. And when they heard that, when they got that news... They started this very intentional process. They gathered their riches to be able to give to the king. They put together their traveling company, their entourage, to make this journey, not knowing um, where they were going to go and how long it was going to take. They were very intentional in pursuing this new king who had been born in Israel. For most of us, we live a life of relative comfort And we kind of go from event to event, from time to time in our life, just kind of floating through the process. It's not uncommon at all for someone when they're 30 or 40 or 60 or 70 to turn around and say, how did we get here? How did we land in DeWitt, Michigan? 
how, how did I end up in this job that I have? This is not what I necessarily intended. My caution to you today is to not let that happen in your spiritual life, to not let that happen in your relationship with Jesus. The wise men um, found Jesus not by accident, but because they were very intentional. One of the other things that I think is interesting in the process, did you realize that the wise men, when when the star stopped being available for them, they stopped and asked for directions. It's not a bad thing. If, you, if you're at a place spiritually that you just feel like, you know what, I'm stuck. I don't know where to go next. Ask for help. Don't feel like that's a sign of weakness. Don't feel like that, that, that's um, something that's below you, that you should just know what to ask for help. That's what the wise men did. And it came through some, through some strange um, circumstances, through, through some strange channels to get them where they needed to be to find Jesus. Ultimately, when the wise men come to Jesus, what do they do? They give their gifts, but we miss the fact that it says that they fell on their knees, their faces, and worshiped him. When you're pursuing Jesus, um, it is so important to not just do it from an academic standpoint, to not just go through the motions, to not just say, you know what, I'm at church, so I'm trying to figure out Jesus. It is to, it is to with your whole heart, to worship him completely, to lay everything at his feet and say, God, you're the one who's worthy. Jesus, you're the one who's worthy. I want to worship you. Come and fill me. Finding Jesus doesn't happen by chance. Second thing, God provides for his plan in ways that we would never suspect, in ways that we would never expect. Think about it for a second. Joseph and Mary make this trip. They're, they're married, right? They don't have a lot of resources. Mary's from a very poor family. She's not going to have a dowry. Joseph's not going to be a rich guy. They have to go. They have to make this journey that's, that's a week long to take them to Bethlehem. They don't have a lot of resources. They make the trip to Jerusalem, come back. They don't have a lot. And all of a sudden, in come these guys from the east. And they worship Jesus, and they give as gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They give resources that are able to fund Mary and Joseph. They're able to take care of their needs all the time that they're in Bethlehem. They're able to finance their trip to Egypt and back, back, potentially even to begin to finance the beginning of Joseph's work in Nazareth as carpenter, as a builder. God provides for us in ways that we don't normally suspect. Think about in your life, when you look backwards and think about where you are and how God has worked in your story, there are so many things that I'm guessing you can point to to say, you know what, I never would have thought that God would have used that to bring me to him. I never would have thought that God would have supplied that need in that way. I never would have thought that God would have done that in my life. God provides for his plan in ways that we would never expect, never suspect. Last thought's this. No one can thwart the plan of God. Herod had all of the power in the world, in Judea. He wasn't Rome, but he ruled the region of Judea. 
Herod had the power to execute his wife and not face any repercussions for that. He had the the ability to execute her brother and mother and grandfather. He had the ability to execute his kids and not come to trial for any of that. Herod had unbelievable power, but he could not thwart the plan of God. Herod had the inside track to the wise men. He knew where the baby was going to be born, but he couldn't thwart the plan of God. That's a a theme that's throughout Scripture. If you think into the Old Testament, the story of Haman. Haman was an advisor to a king and, and set it up with the king so that the Jews would be exterminated, literally wiped out in a day. And yet Esther was the queen with her uncle Mordecai that Mordecai said, who knows if you've come to power for such a time as this. Esther is able to influence the king, write a new edict. The Jews are able to defend themselves. And God provides for them so that the Jews aren't wiped out. No one can thwart the plans of God. Job says in in chapter 42, I know that you can do all things and that no thought or purpose or plan of yours can be restrained or thwarted. Job, after everything that he went through, says, God, I know that no plan of yours can be thwarted. I don't know where you are and what you're going through right now, but you may feel like, you know what? Yeah, I know God's got a plan for my life, but I feel like I messed it up when I did blank. I feel like I made a wrong decision and that took me far from God and that that's never going to be able to be recovered. I feel like this person did this to me back when I was young. This person did this to me in my work life. This person did this to me, and as a result of that, I can never be where God wants me to be. I can never have the right kind of relationship with him. Hold on to this truth. No plan of God can ever be thwarted by anyone or anything. God has a purpose for you. He has a plan for your life. He loves you desperately. Here's the challenge, I think, as we look at Herod and the wise men, this aspect of the story of Jesus. God's fingerprints are throughout history to accomplish his will. What's his will? It's to redeem us. It's what we sang about right, uh, right before the message, that we can reign with him eternally, that we can have a relationship with him, that we walk, we live in the midst of that relationship as father and son, father and daughter. Let's pray. God, we come to you right now. And, and we're just grateful, Lord, that you are not silent, that you're not distant. God, that in the birth of Jesus, you didn't just set it up. You were present at every turn. You were present thousands of miles away. Um, Lord, you were present tens of thousands of miles away in space and set the stars in motion so that the wise men could come to worship Jesus. God, I thank you that even in the world that we live in right now, with the stuff in Iraq, with the Islamic State, with the horrible things that are there, God, the, the things that are present in our world around us that are nasty and evil, that you still reign, that you are sovereign. God, that you 
um, that the universe is in your hand. Lord, our desire is that we would worship you completely, that we would place ourselves at your feet like the wise men, God, that we would give all of ourselves to you, to trust you, to walk in that relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing.